Hello and welcome to episode, I think this is going to be 14 of the Policy Agendas podcast. I am EJ Fagan and today I am joined by the manager of the Policy Agendas project, Brooke Shannon. Hi, thanks for having me. And we are joined uh, by Professor Alex Hertel Fernandez. He is an assistant professor uh, of, of politics or political science at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs and the author of the book, State Capture, How Conservat- uh, Conservative Activists, Big Business, and Wealthy Donors Reshaped the American States and the Nation. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, this is a this is a wonderful book, and and really the the um, the 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 result of years of effort. I've, I've been following all of your papers as they've been published, and um, I really love how this this comes together in the book. Can you can you explain before we get into the details, just the overall kind of big picture argument of state capture? Sure, and and thank you for those kind words. It's certainly a book that draws on many different pieces of evidence uh, that took a while to assemble. I think, as we'll get into in our discussion, there's no one piece of evidence that can pin down the reasons why organizations evolve the way that they do or their impact on politics. And that hints at some of the broader arguments that I hope to make in the book. So the book really has three parts to it. The first part asks, how is it that conservatives, um, and here I'm talking about individual donors, philanthropies, advocacy groups and and individual activists work together with private sector businesses to build cross-state networks to try and reshape state policy. Um, And so this is very much an inward-looking story within these organizations, asking how they manage tensions within each of the parts of this coalition, how they came up with political strategies, and how they changed over time. The second part of the book asks, well, what effect have those cross-state networks had on state policy and politics? And that's more outward-looking. It's looking at the effect that these organizations have had on specific pieces of legislation and also the broader political terrain in the states. The third part of the book asks, well, if conservatives have been so successful at building up these networks uh, that operate across states, why haven't liberals responded in kind? And why does it seem as though Democrats and the left have really struggled to take advantage of state policy and politics in the same way as conservatives? And let's start by talking about the the first big organization um, that, that, that makes up about the first half of the book, um, the American Le- Legislative Exchange Council. So can you tell us a little bit about what ALEC is, just kind of, kind of briefly for anybody who hasn't heard of them? Sure. As you alluded to, I look at three organizations in the book. I, I dub them the right-wing troika, although now I'm somewhat regretting using uh, the Russian shorthand for that, given everything that's happening in this country. But there we are. Um, and so the troika consists of ALEC, the group that you mentioned, Americans for Prosperity and the State Policy Network. And in the first part of the book, I focus on ALEC because it is the oldest of the organizations and in some way forms the backbone of the coalitions that I'm looking at. But I want to be clear that the book um, focuses on, on this broader set of of organizations as well. So ALEC got started in the 1970s, and it was formed very much in in a reaction to what conservatives perceived to be liberal dominance in the states um, and liberal dominance in national politics more generally. And this sort of fits well with some of the conversations that you've had on the podcast before. Uh, I'm thinking in particular about the, the book, The Great Broadening, talking about the broader liberalizing trends in policy at the national level that you saw in the United States in the 1970s. Um, and these conservative activists were very much reacting to that at the state level, pointing 
pointing out how states were increasing spending in a number of areas, passing new regulations. And so they said, you know, if we want to retain our strength and and have any chance of rebuilding strength at the state level, we have to get together organizations of our own that can provide resources to state lawmakers, ideas for those state lawmakers, for the bills that they should pass, and an agenda for doing that. Alec is is a bit of a, an odd organization in the way that that it's structured. So when I before I read this book, to me I, I understood Alec as a corporate organization to to influence public policy in the states um, for for the the benefit of the corporations who are members of it. But it's a little more complicated than that, right? That's right. I'm I'm guessing that many of your listeners may have heard about Alec in the news. It's uh, come under repeated controversy in recent years, and it often gets described by political journalists or pundits on the left as a corporate bill mill, a chance for companies to write legislation that goes off to the states and state lawmakers enact it wholesale. And there's a portion of that that's true. Companies are a major supporter of Alec. They participate in the group's task forces, and they certainly have a heavy hand in writing legislation. But as I discuss in the book, companies are only one part of the ALEC coalition, and it includes social conservative groups, philanthropies, individual wealthy donors, and state think tanks and national think tanks as well. And so over the years, ALEC has had to come up with ways of balancing the different interests that each of these actors had. You know, the companies might want to focus just on bills that lower their tax burden, raise regulatory requirements on their competitors to shut out a competition in markets, uh, or weaken labor unions, whereas as social conservatives in the group cared about more hot-button social issues like gay marriage, the Equal Rights Amendment, or, or abortion or gun rights. Why did corporate America or, or the, 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 the subgroup of corporations that, that were involved with ALEC, why did they make this, this kind of formal alliance in an organization with social conservatives and, and conservative activists more broadly? So in the book, I, I'm clear that I think there are a number of different processes going into this. Part of this is a more general tendency of businesses to get mobilized in politics starting in the 1970s and really accelerating in the 1980s. And they're very much responding to the wave of this new legislation at the state and federal level, new regulation that crossed old sectoral boundaries. You had the creation of a bevy of new agencies like OSHA for occupational safety, the EPA for environmental regulation regulation, consumer protection uh, agencies, and companies were really worried about this. And so they, they felt like they had a bigger stake in policy and politics and had to get involved. So that's sort of a more general background to what's happening in ALEC. But a more specific uh, thing that is happening is that political entrepreneurs, politicians and activists within ALEC that helped to start the group, began making the case to companies that if they really wanted to have an impact on state policy, that they should be working through ALEC. Instead of hiring lobbyists in each and every state capital, companies could go to ALEC and work with the organization to produce model legislation that would then go out across the entire network that ALEC had assembled. So it was in many ways a sort of utility that businesses could take advantage of um, and a shortcut for trying to lobby across the states. But then why, why I, I can imagine you know, the textbook, you know, um, uh, the textbook version of, of businesses working together to, to lobby would be they would form a business group. Um, so why did why do you all of a sudden have kind of this this alliance with gun rights groups and social and social conservatives and and, and very unbusiness uh, issues that businesses are either ambivalent about or may even you know and you know when when pressed would would even oppose some of these these policy changes. 
Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I have some really great quotes from government affairs officers at companies in Alex's early years talking about how they were a little uncomfortable working with an organization that was so active on social issues. But Alec had an edge that it could offer that other organizations couldn't in that it had already started to assemble a network of conservative lawmakers from both parties, from Republican uh, legislatures, from Democratic legislatures all across the country. And so they managed to carve out a niche that they could offer that, you know, the Chamber of Commerce couldn't or that other associations couldn't do. And it would have taken substantial effort for companies to try and reproduce that on their own. And so even though companies may not have liked it originally, Alec had this utility that was valuable to them. Um, of course, over time, as companies gained the upper hand in Alec's management, they managed to push down, sort of tamp down Alec's focus on social issues. And throughout the 1990s in particular, you saw Alec focused mainly on sort of bottom line corporate issues. But that changed over time. And, and I, I'm more than happy to get into that um, if if that's something you'd like to discuss. Well, I'd like to, um, to also just to pivot to some of the other just kind of general findings about Alex's activities. Can you explain, um, you, you mentioned that they they're, they were had a reputation as being a bill farm. Can you explain some of your model bill findings? Yeah. So I think this is an important finding for understanding how state politics works. And then also as a methodological approach for trying to measure influence, uh, because that's something that political scientists have been struggling with for, for decades to understand whether or not a particular interest group actually changes the content of policy. So Alec produces model bills, um, as many other interest groups do, and as, as is a time-honored tactic in, in American politics. But what Alec does is it, it doesn't just produce these model bills, it also offers a host of other services to help state lawmakers pass those model bills, um, giving lawmakers research reports, uh, uh, ideas for who they should invite to bill hearings to testify on behalf of that legislation, polling and talking points they can use in support of that model legislation. And it turns out that that's really valuable because in many states, lawmakers simply don't have the time or the staff help to really consider and introduce legislation on their own. Although there are several states that have what we call in political science, you know, fairly professionalized legislatures, like my current home state of New York, but also California and Pennsylvania, those tend to be full-time, full-year legislatures that are that pay their lawmakers well enough that you, know, you pretty much only work as a lawmaker. And they also give you know, a great number of staff uh, to lawmakers. In most states, it doesn't look like New York or California. You might be lucky if you have one or two staffers working part-time or staffers that you share with other members, and your legislature probably only meets a couple months a year. And indeed, there are, there are some legislatures, uh, uh, like yours in Texas, that don't meet every year. Uh, so that doesn't give Five a lot of- Five months every two years. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's not a lot of time to consider all of the things that states need to be acting on when you think about all of the responsibilities that they have. Under those conditions, it's really valuable for a group like ALEC to come in and provide exactly the ideas and research and support that you might might not have otherwise. So in the book, I use a tactic I call policy plagiarism detection, um, basically using text analysis to figure out where lawmakers have copied and pasted bills from ALEC's 
library and introduce them as their own. And I look at the state level first and I show that it tends to be states that have lower levels of legislative professionalism. So fewer staffers, shorter sessions, and lower salaries for lawmakers that rely most heavily on ALEC. And that remains true even if I look at regression models that control for the partisan balance within state legislatures and look at variation within states over time. And then within legislative chambers, it tends to be the most junior members who are most likely to copy and paste and plagiarize their bills, if you will, from ALEC. And so that's a nice test of the interest group influence that ALEC is having. It's sort of a smoking gun test because we can be sure that those lawmakers relied on ALEC. And it also teaches us something important about how state legislatures work, which is to say they need a lot of ideas and resources because they currently don't get them from their own staff or don't have the capacity to do it. And so interest groups that do that, that provide those resources, can be quite valuable. Right. So like you said earlier, um, and throughout the book, this is really clear that the corporations are really dictating a lot of a lot of the there the interests and preferences of the corporations are really what comes through in a lot of these bills at the state level and throughout the country. So, um, one of the interesting things uh, about corporate interest in particular is that you mention a lot the fragmentation of that corporate interest. And um, do you see this fragmentation in a specific? any specific is issue area, like in any policy issues? Um, and does this also happen to other coalition partners, maybe the um, the social socially conservative interest groups that are partnering with, with the corporations, things like that? It's a great question because uh, many political scientists writing before on business government relations have emphasized how difficult it is to get businesses to cooperate within trade associations that span sector lines and even within sectors. And because there are many cases where businesses want to undermine their competitors or want different things from governments. And so it took Alec trial and error in order to come up with a structure that let businesses basically settle their disputes. And Alec's model that it arrived at was a bidding system. If you bid more to Alec, you would get to write the model bills, even if your opponents within the organization disagreed with you. And I think one nice example of that comes from the battles over electricity deregulation in the 1990s. Um, this was a battle, set of battles where Coke Industries and Enron, probably companies that are that may be quite familiar to your listeners, uh, particularly in Texas, um, uh, may be familiar with. Um, and, uh, and in this battle, um, Enron and Coke Industries were pushing against uh, local state utilities that were against deregulation. And, and Coke Industries and Enron were supportive of it. And ultimately, Enron was willing to bid more to Alec to write it, the model bill on electricity markets. And so it did. It actually paid so much that it sponsored an entire annual meeting that Alec had for state lawmakers. And it turns out that Alec model bill and, and research support that it offered to lawmakers was an important uh, uh, factor in driving state uh, deregulation of, of electrical markets uh, during that period. Um, uh, another uh, another issue that you raised was how businesses uh, cooperate or or not with the social partners, um, or social issue groups within Alec. And here, I think Alec has done a nice job of pushing issues and teaching the different actors in its coalition the importance of pushing what I, I call power building policies. Th those are public good policies that benefit 
all conservative actors. Uh, so for instance, if you weaken labor unions, that's not just good materially for businesses that are most affected by labor unions. You also make it harder for Democrats to win elected office and to pass progressive policy. And that benefits all of the other social issue groups as well. Um, and so that's why you see uh, groups like the NRA and uh, religious right groups within ALEC backing measures to weaken public sector labor unions. That might seem initially a little bit surprising. You know, what does the NRA care how powerful teachers unions are? But within this coalition, I think ALEC is making the case to its, its lawmakers and its members that if you push this policy, you pave the way for future conservative victories on all of your other issues. Right. Thereby capturing the state legislators' attention, right? in all these different areas. That's right. A key theme of the book is that if you can change the organizational balance within states, you can have a big enduring effect on state politics in, in the years to come. Um, and I think union law is, is one great example of this. We've seen a number of states pass cutbacks to collective bargaining rights and, and, uh, and unions' abilities to charge dues and fees to members and non-members. And you know, that's had a big effect on, on politics as well. Did, did, did Republicans in these states need Alec to tell them that like, a right-to-work law would be a, a good thing for Republicans? That's a good question. So exactly how much did Alec contribute versus the broader conservative movement versus what these lawmakers are? I'm wondering did. if the counterfactual where Alec isn't there, you know, how much how much yeah. different do, do we see? Do we see the same policy maybe proceed slower or do we see like a different set of policy preferences? I think it's a great question. I think if you ask most conservative lawmakers now, or even several uh, uh, several decades ago when Alec was um, was getting started, you know, they would probably say it's a good thing to weaken unions. They, there are opponents, and obviously, that's going to have benefits. But I think where Alec has an effect is in helping set the agenda, saying not only is this important and it's going to be good for conservatives, but you should put it first, because if you do this, then it paves the way for these other priorities and really getting lawmakers and its and its member groups to think in terms of power building in this way. And I think we can learn a little bit more about the counterfactual, counterfactual by looking at what happens on the left. And on the left, as I document in the book, there have just been far fewer organizations that are trying to coordinate priorities in the same way as the Troika and particularly ALEC at the state level. And I think that's why you haven't seen progressive lawmakers or Democratic lawmakers thinking about policy in the same way as reconfiguring power. And it explains why uh, it's until re recently you haven't seen Democrat, democratically controlled legislatures or governors really taking early and big steps to bolster, say, labor. In terms of um, issue capture, I think there's a, a large um, literature about this in political science, right, about issue ownership between parties and liberal versus conservative. Um, throughout the book, in policies that are both proposed and enacted, the policy issue areas that really are strongest in ALEC um, in terms of just the numbers of policies that are both both proposed and enacted are in education and healthcare. And then for another member of the Troika, the State Policy Network, um, you add tax reform to that. But specifically for education and healthcare, these are two issues that we really don't think about being captured by conservatives or Republicans. Um, was that surprising to you in in your research? 
It's a great question. So how how does the Troika's success vary by issue area? And how should we think of this as being aligned or not with the uh, the policy images and repu- and um, ownership by the two co- party coalitions? Um, you know, on one level, it may be surprising that a conservative organization like this is so involved in these areas. But if you think about it another way, it makes a lot of sense, given that when you look at state budgets and what state governments do, most of it is healthcare and education. It's Medicaid, the federal state program to cover low-income, disabled, um, and other vulnerable populations, and then K through 12 education and higher education. And so it makes sense that these are the issues that Alec uh, was. When you look at the total sheer number of model bills, that's where a lot of the energy is is being directed. Those are also areas where Alec has managed to find common cause with Democrats most frequently. And so I think it makes sense that when you look at just the sheer number of enactments you're more likely to see enactments where ALEC priorities align with both Republican and Democratic legislative agendas. And so I would just point out a couple examples here, you know, especially when it comes to education, one of the most successful areas, you know, for a while, um, and up until very recently, there was a large uh, set of forces within the Democratic Party that were supportive of alternatives to public schools, like charter schools or vouchers, and that was supportive of introducing more evaluation measures of teachers uh, than I think um, than teachers unions were historically comfortable with. And those were areas where Alec was able to cross party lines and work with um, be- between the the Democrats and and Republicans. Hmm, fascinating. I'd like to move on and talk a little more briefly about the other two members of the Troika, the State Policy Network and Americans for Prosperity. Can you just briefly explain who they are and really how they differ in in their activities from ALEC? Sure. So the State Policy Network was created in the 1980s, and it was a loose coalition in its early years of state-level conservative uh, free market think tanks. And it became more formalized as the years went on, particularly after the early 2000s. Um, And it now counts affiliates in, in nearly every state. And these think tanks produce research reports, testimony. They participate in media coverage of policy debates. Uh, They sometimes do polling and litigation, but typically it's in service of many of the same priorities that Alec pursues. And that's no coincidence because in its early years, one of Alec's early uh, executive directors uh, invited the State Policy Network to start participating in Alec task forces and help them raise money because he recognized, I think correctly, that Alec would be more successful if there were forces outside of the state legislature that were pushing for Alec model bills. Um, And then Americans for Prosperity is the most recent addition to the Troika, but in many ways has grown to be one of the one of the largest uh, in scope. And it is part of the Koch political network created by Charles and the late David uh, Koch uh, of Koch Industries. And it is it's a funny beast. In some ways, it looks like a political party. It's a federated organization that has local offices in counties, state offices, regional offices, national offices. And it has grassroots volunteers who are signed up to participate in activities like canvassing or participating in rallies or lobbying state legislatures. But then it also has a large campaign war chest that's directed by its national team in the Washington, D.C. area. And AFP is involved in both elections. So it's involved in city council races, state legislative races, and uh, congressional and even presidential races. And then it's also involved on the lobbying side, too. And in many cases, when you have the most high-profile battles over ALEC model bills, 
AFP is marshalling its grassroots volunteers and its uh, sort of media campaigns to push for that legislation. Uh, and you saw this, for instance, in the high profile battles over Medicaid expansion in the states and efforts to cut back union rights. And so while ALEC is actually quite small, it really punches above its weight. It's a $10 million organization at its peak. Americans for Prosperity is a $100 million organization, right? This is a, they're operating on very different scales. That's right. And I think that reflects the different costs that are involved with producing uh, legislative support and, uh, and mobilizing a large grassroots net- network that in some ways is meant to, uh, uh, to replicate a party structure, um, of course, working within the Republican Party largely. All right. So I'd, we'd like to transition to just kind of some more big picture questions. So I'll, I'll start off here. Um, you, the, one of the, the, the later chapters of the book focuses on the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's delayed response in creating similar structures or trying to create similar structures and, and not doing so very successfully. Um, just just to make the, the conservative argument here would be that well, you know, Democrats had labor unions in 50 states and had environmental groups in 50 states and had universities which tend to lean left. And they're producing a bunch of information that um, that generally moves government policy to the left. And so Democrats don't actually need uh, an equivalent to these groups. Um, is, is, that, is that correct or is there something something that Democrats are really missing? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned labor unions because really, as I, as I mentioned in the discussion about Alec's origins, it was the rise of public sector labor movements in, in many states in the 60s and 70s that prompted Alec's founders to be concerned about conservative dominance in the states. They saw you know, teachers that were politically mobilized at the state level lobbying for greater spending, uh, prom- uh, higher taxes, greater labor market regulations. And for a while, I think public sector labor unions, in part because they were so well organized at the state level, and part of federation, so they could move resources and ideas across state lines, that public sector labor unions did form an important backbone of liberal cross-state strength. But as we've seen in, in recent years, public sector labor unions are declining in strength in part because of conservative successes at the state level in passing right-to-work laws, cutbacks to collective bargaining rights, and at the federal level um, through the judiciary, through the Janus Supreme Court decision, for instance, that applied right-to-work across the entire public sector. So I think public sector labor unions really can't offer that same uh, cross-state clout that they once did. You mentioned that there are a number of other interest groups and actors within states, and I think that's definitely true. Environmental groups, reproductive rights groups, universities sometimes uh, providing policy ideas and support to lawmakers. But what's special and different about the Troika are that they are multi-issue and they're cross-state networks. So it's not just within state actors. It's the idea of having networks that have a presence in each state, but they can pull resources nationally and set agendas in strategic ways, recognizing, for instance, that now might be a good time to push for a bill in Michigan and uh, and drawing on the lessons from a battle that just happened, say, in Indiana. And so that's something that in-state actors lack, is having that cross-state picture and cross-state resources. Uh, It matters that they're multi-issue in that these organizations on the right, the Troika, can really help set agendas in productive ways. They can say, well, we are going to push for this bill first, followed by that bill, and then a third bill. I think what happens all too frequently in a fragmented, liberal, in-state infrastructure is that you you get a whole bunch of actors who are pushing for environmental policy, reproductive rights policy, 
labor market policy, and there is no clear prioritization of what what should be pushed first. And that substantially weakens, I think, Democrats and, and progressives' abilities to move state politics in the same way as conservatives. Not only are there a lot of different types of policies being pushed at the states and that the states take care of, um, but the fact is that a lot of the policies that Alec puts forward are not super popular, especially with public opinion. Um, there's a quote that's in the book that's quite famous from, I think, the president of Alec when he said, like, it's best for us if the majority of people don't vote. <laughs> um, so we're wondering, is there any democratic accountability? Like, is there backlash to enacting unpopular policies um, that are Alec supported or Alec um, sort of the copy and paste policies, the plagiarized policies that you say, um, do these lawmakers sort of pull back once they experience negative feedback? Yeah, it's a great question and one that really gets to the heart of a lot of political science work. How accountable are lawmakers for the ideas and the bills and the policies that they put forward? Unfortunately, the research from other folks who have looked into this at the state level is there's not a lot of accountability. Um, there's uh, great work by political scientist Stephen Rogers looking at whether or not lawmakers who take votes that are out of step with their uh, state legislative districts face backlash in subsequent elections. And the best evidence is there's not a great deal of accountability for that. And I think uh, there are reasons to think that state lawmakers have even less accountability than they once did, given the nationalization of politics on the one hand, which means that people are increasingly casting their votes for state legislators or governors on the basis of the national parties, national issues, rather than on what those state lawmakers are actually voting on. So that's one trend that I think is worrisome. The other trend that's worrisome is the decline in media coverage of state house legislating and politics. Um, the Pew Research Center has documented, for instance, a really precipitous decline in over even over the 2000s of full-time reporters covering state house policy and politics. And that means that it's harder for people to figure out what their state, state lawmakers are voting on. So I think in both of these ways, it's less likely that politicians that pass ALEC model bills that are very unpopular are going to be punished. Um, that said, I think we have seen some cases where ALEC backed politicians, Troika-backed politicians, have gone so far that there is public backlash and counter-mobilization. I think about the case of Kansas, for instance, where um, the legislature passed very large tax cuts that ended up um, causing backlash even from Republicans in the state who are worried about the provision of public finances. Uh, and then I also think about cases where the teachers uh, have risen up a, last year, for instance, in a number of states to protest cuts to public education spending, the spread of charter schools and vouchers, and cuts in taxes uh, that that disadvantage the, the children that they teach. So I think in, in, in both of these cases, we see some pretty high-profile efforts by people to check the the unpopular nature of, of Troika legislation. All right. So uh, we're going to begin to wrap up um, here a little bit. Uh, just one one question we're, we're asking for a friend. Uh, th this book is does an, an excellent job of synthesizing together a lot of political science information in a way that is readable and um, I, I think appeals to both political scientists and people beyond that. 
how'd you do it? How, how, how did you approach writing this book after, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, really uh, you know, uh, uh, releasing quite a few papers showing individual elements of this story? Like, how'd you bring it together? Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm happy you mentioned that, and I appreciate the um, the reading of the book that, because I, that was my goal was to create a product that would be accessible not only to political science audience uh, readers but also uh, folks who are just interested in state policy and politics uh, more broadly. And I would say my two strategies have been to find books uh, by authors who are doing this already and trying to figure out what works in their writing, and then also editing and editing and editing. I think it, it takes a while to take ideas that you have uh, originally crafted and, and framed for a technical academic audience and then think about ways of preserving the argument that you're making and the nuance while also making it more accessible. So we always ask at the end of our, of our podcasts uh, for reading recommendations. So if somebody has listened to this podcast and would like to continue reading something not by you uh, on the subject, what should they go read? So I guess I would mention um, two books that uh, that come to mind that I think are, are nice compliments. One of them is uh, Matt Grossman, a political scientist at Michigan State University, has a nice new book out called Red State Blues that looks at uh, how the conservative uh, uh, takeover of many states, in his view, has actually not produced very large policy gains. And um, I think it, it makes for a nice complement to state capture because we're, we're both looking at the same phenomenon and reaching slightly different conclusions uh, in some parts because we're looking at different outcomes and some parts because we sort of have different definitions of what it means to be successful. So I think that would be a nice um, a, a nice complement to state capture. I would also add um, Jamila Michener, a political scientist at Cornell's new book, uh, Fragmented Democracy, looking at the political consequences of state-by-state -state variation in Medicaid policy. And she does a great job of showing how these state-level policies can have enormous variation even within states and also have big impacts on how people experience their political lives, uh, the ways in which they think about government and the role that it plays um, uh, in their day-to-day -day activities. So I think that's a nice reminder of the ways in which these decisions that we're talking about in state legislatures um, actually get translated into the experiences of, of, of everyday individuals. That book made me doubt any 50-state you know, very simple data on, on policy outputs um, because yes. the, they're so heterogeneous. <laughs> um, Alex, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. And Brooke, on, on behalf of Brooke and myself, and we, we'd also like to thank the Liberal Arts and Structural Technology crew here at the University of Texas at Austin. This has been your Policy Agendas podcast. Mm -hmm.